Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Museum of Seminole County History is commemorating the 185th anniversary of the Battle of Camp Monroe, a rare U.S. Army victory in the Second Seminole War. Joining us to fill us in on the festivities is Bennett Lloyd. He's a longtime soldier reenactor, having gotten his start with the Micanopy regulars years ago. More importantly, he is the museum director. As such, he is running this living history programming. He will describe all he has in store for visitors on the first weekend in February. Bennett will rejoin us for a second episode to explain the to and fro of the actual battle. Bennett Lloyd, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to be here. Bennett, you're behind the commemoration of the Battle of Camp Monroe. Tell us about this commemoration and what it commemorates. In February, February 4th and 5th, the Museum of Seminole County History will be hosting a commemoration of the 185th anniversary of the battle at Camp Monroe. Camp Monroe was the name of the encampment that the U.S. Army established on the shore of Lake Monroe before Fort Mellon was built. And the fort was eventually named for the only death in that battle on the United States side, Captain Mellon. What have you got planned? We are going to have two encampments. The lake shore right now is very heavily developed and it doesn't really provide ambiance. The site of the actual battle is on the site of 1920s Inn. That itself is very nice, but not very conducive to a reenactment. We will have camps for soldiers and Seminoles, and audience members are welcome to tour the encampments, listen to the demonstrators and speakers on the battle and its significance, and we'll be doing musket firings and have camp cooking going on and all kinds of different demonstrations for you. Okay, what are the admin specs for those who want to come out? So generally, it's the first weekend in February, and on the days when the Saturday falls on the 8th, we will move it to the second weekend in February. In the past, our event has conflicted with some other stuff, like it's very close to the battle at Loxahatchee, but we try and hold it as close to the actual day of the event as we can. And when is this happening? The 4th and the 5th, Friday, Saturday, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We are located at 300 Esslinger Way in Sanford, Florida. Sanford is just north of Orlando, and 300 Esslinger Way is the site of the Museum of Seminole County History. We're located in a 1926 building that used to be the county's old folks' home before there was such a thing as nursing homes. It was the end-of-life care facility for county residents. So the museum admission is $3 for adults, $1 for students, seniors, and military, plus tax, and children under four get in for free, parking right next to the building. We have a great deal on Seminole County's history both before it became Seminole County and afterward. We used to be a part of Orange County before 1913. Anyone coming into the museum can expect to see that on the colonial period and the territorial period in Florida, we have a room dedicated to the Second Seminole War in particular because that was so foundational to Anglo-American settlement of this county. And we have the exhibits dedicated to our Native American and Pioneer collections, an agricultural showcase describing what farming has been like over the past 300 years here. We have an exhibit on the senator tree, the 3,500-year-old cypress tree that uh, burnt down in 2012 locally. When did the museum get started up? 
The museum started in 1983. The Historical Society and Historical Commission of Seminole County have been active since the 1960s. They've been responsible for most of the historic monuments that have been put up around Seminole County. As part of their charters, they acquired artifacts and things that were worthy of preservation. So the museum opened in 1983 as a means of displaying and educating the public on that unique heritage. And over the decades, it has grown. It used to be just this building, and now we've added the back building, which is the agricultural showcase in the Native American section, the pioneer section, the senator artwork. We have a two-acre courtyard that's fenced and manicured. That's where we're going to be hosting the encampment. It's just been growing and expanding ever since. How is the museum organized? And is it all in one place, or are there several buildings? There's a wonderful contrast in that regard. The museum main building is compartmentalized, so it's very easy to separate the different eras and subjects, which is great for tours and keeping people on task, as it were. The back building is very open, and we did that intentionally in the design as part of a push to get kids more interested. We have a lot of interactives back there. It's a lot more free form and loose. The main building we use as our timeline of this is how the county has developed, and then our back building we go into the agricultural showcase, the uh, different subjects there, and then the Native American section goes into the Mayaka and the Seminole, more detached from the wartime past that we focus on in the main building. We are on two acres of grounds here. It's all fenced in. In the past, we've set up kitchen tent and several domicile tents. We've had both militia and soldiers present, and then then the opposite side, we have the Seminoles, whether it's tents or we've also constructed lean-to structures in the past that are more chicky-like with the palm thatch construction that would have been very easy and very quick to do in the swamps and also very easy to disguise from soldiers, which is one of the things that we take a look at. You have a number of living historian uh, reenactors coming out? Right now, we have, I think, six confirmed. Usually, we'll have between six and 12, depending on the year. The ones that we have right now are doing different branches of the U.S. military. For instance, we have one who is specializes in dragoons, another who is specifically the Navy. The Navy actually had a huge part to play in the battle, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. And their training at the time was unique. It was a separate branch of sorts. And this was uh, really the first war where combined operations played a major, major part between those two branches of the military. We also, in the past, we've had uh, infantry and artillery. On the civilian side, we do have a Lady Brigitte Stevenson, who is curator of the Sanford Museum, another local museum, and she specializes in 1830s civilian topics, particularly women's issues, because the situation for women in Florida was very unique. They had a lot of legal holdovers from the Spanish system that gave them a lot more power than they did in the rest of the United States. She goes into that, and her outfit and scholarly contributions are amazing. And on the Seminoles side, we typically have Paul Rowley, who does a lot of Muscogee interpretations, and the DeBerry family comes out and shows a little bit of the family life and they discuss the Seminole side of it, what their tactics might have been, what their goals were, and I appreciate having them out here to give that side of it rather than just this is what we have in Frank's book or in the Florida War by Sprague. So it gives another perspective on what their thoughts and goals were in this kind of combat. Along the outside of the camp, we've had booths before. For example, we've had someone doing scrimshaw, which is typical Navy art of the period, whether on bone or ivory. We've had 
other historical or societies and organizations oriented along the outside. But we try and keep the camps themselves more centralized, like a, a camp might have been. So we'll have a row of army tents and a central campfire with maybe a kitchen fly. And then the Seminoles are spread over amongst the tree cover. Visitors coming out have access to the entire grounds, though, correct? They can freely walk around and tour the different camps, watch the soldiers and the Seminoles taking part in daily activities in an encampment. We have on-the-hour musket firings where we will talk about the history of the, the battle itself, why we're there, what its effects were on the Seminole War, and on Florida history going even further afield. Bennett, what kind of feedback do you get from visitors to the site? I ask this of the people who visit. I try and see what they're getting out of it. The answers that I get are mainly the immersion effect. People can smell what it was like. They can see what it was like. They can taste what it's like if we're doing samples. We usually give out free samples of hardtack and, and talk about how they prepared it, what the other rations were, the salt pork, the rice ration, and how they would prepare it in their little camp bucket. They were issued one for every four men. In what you're presenting, how important is it for you to feature day-to-day, daily activities of the soldiers or the Seminoles during that period? Knowing these day-to-day things and why fighting in Florida was so difficult and what it was like in the days without air conditioning, it opens some eyes about how difficult things were. And also, it puts the way that they live here into perspective. When I talk to older kids, they think that Seminole County was named for the Seminoles because the Seminoles were here when the county was created. But that's not true. There's a disconnect of 70 years between the county's founding and when the Seminoles were pushed out of the area. It also grounds them in their current history and also makes them ask some hard questions of themselves, of the country's past. And these aren't bad questions, but it's good to know that history and know these struggles and strife which crafted the modern day. One of the more popular events that you feature is the hourly musket firing. Tell us about that. As far as the musket firing goes, sometimes we'll even intentionally sabotage the firing so that we can get that lesson in there, whether it's putting too little powder in or using an old flint or something of that nature, because it allows us to talk about the technology. And it's worth noting that the soldiers were purposefully using older technology. In one of the accounts we have, uh, Lynch's account, he talks about how they had these percussion cap hall rifles, but none of the soldiers wanted to use them because the flints were, to them, more reliable. They knew how to work with them in case they misfired. They knew what conditions they would fire under, and they were well-practiced and drilled with the firing of them. What you described, Bennett, is what I saw. You and Kent Lowe there several years ago, and you intentionally had it misfire so you could show what it took to replace the flint or to do what we in the Army called immediate action to see what's keeping the weapon from firing. In the case of a misfire, you're taking a very dangerous weapon and you are trying essentially to either fire it safely the way it was intended or you're trying to disarm what is possibly a pipe bomb. The different methods of working with gunpowder and just how dangerous it was, a lot of this is lost on modern culture where it's as simple as putting a shell into a chamber and it fires reliably pretty much every time. This was an early period where you had to load 
the powder, the ball, everything separately, and you were working with this day-to-day. And the misfire, checking the different ways it might have misfired, whether it was a flash in the pan, whether the uh, vent hole was clogged, whether the flint actually sparked. If there's powder still in the pan, then it, it might be the flint that's the problem, and trying to rechip that. And all while trying to do it in a few seconds so that you can get off the shot before combat either moved into hand-to-hand or before you were shot with a rifle ball because the Seminoles could outrange you in a lot of cases. Those kinds of pressure additives are the only real way to convey it to people in real time to show them this is what it actually took to survive a battle like this. The Seminoles fought differently than the soldiers. What type of military action were the soldiers trained in to fight? The method of combat for the day is very much based in Napoleonic warfare. The United States was obsessed with Napoleon and the way he waged war in Europe. So they abandoned everything they learned in the Revolutionary War and decided they wanted to go back to line firing and emphasis on weight of fire. Weight of fire is a concept which means we throw as much lead downfield at the same time as we can and hope to disable as many of the opposing forces as possible. If you send that much lead down that way, something is going to hit, whether it's in the form of a canister shot or a grape shot, as it's also known, or whether it's in terms of 100 men lined shoulder to shoulder firing loosely in the same direction. Now, you can get accurate shots with these muzzle-loading muskets, but in order to do that, you have to have a tight-fitting ball properly wadded, and that is very slow to load. So they didn't do that with the soldiers. It was purely this weight of fire question. And so you would be loading probably if the muzzle is 69 caliber, you would probably be loading 67 or 65 caliber balls, and you would be doing one every 20 to 30 seconds and just loosing as much lead in the direction of the enemy as possible. The goal wasn't as much to hit something as it was to deter them. The Seminoles retreat often when they encounter cannon fire and canister shot, not because the cannon is accurate. Canister fire is not accurate. It's just replicating what a folly of muskets does, throwing a bunch of lead and you don't want to get hit by it. The whole goal of the U.S. Army and their tactics at the time was maintaining a line. You don't want anything to get past that line. You want that line to be impregnable, whether it's behind a wall or whether it's in the field. The entire principle of warfare is aimed on you trying to use these lines as essentially blocking off exits as attempts to surround and flank your opponents. The goal is very much to get these lines in position where you have a strategic advantage and can pressure the enemy into doing or moving where you want, doing what you want or moving where you want. The Seminoles had an advantage and they had a longer range from their rifles and they were more accurate. The army had the muskets, less accurate, but the muskets had one advantage the rifles did not have and that was they were fitted to insert bayonets. The game changer once you got into close contact with the Seminole. Bayonet charges and hand-to-hand combat were very rare, but they were effective when employed. Uh, I can think of at least one battle in Micanopy where the Dragoons flanked the Seminoles on one side where there was a creek and then charged into the underbrush and effectively disperse the line. But once you get into hand-to-hand combat, the U.S. line is essentially a large porcupine. And while the Seminoles may have better short-range weaponry on them, they can't fight as an individual against what is essentially just a wall of 
spears once the bayonets go on. So it's a very effective deterrent the few times that it is used. Now, it never came to hand-to-hand during the battle at Camp Monroe. The main reason why the battle was won by the United States was the application of that cannon. Some contemporaries and some historians seem to believe that Seminoles were afraid of the bayonets, and so when they were introduced, they would flee. What can you tell us about that? The idea that the Seminoles were scared of bayonets because Seminoles couldn't use bayonets, I'm not sure that's borne out in the scholarship. I think that the Seminoles have a perfectly viable option, which they used plenty of times when they were allied with the British, which is club muskets. That was the the typical order if it came to -to hand-to-hand and you were using a long gun at all. If it came to -to hand-to-hand and you didn't have anything else available, then the order was club muskets, and you could use the musket or rifle effectively as a clubbed weapon. The main issue was just the wide difference in tactics. The Seminoles fought in loose formations, generally what we might think of as skirmish array, and it was difficult for them to congeal into a fighting line, and they wouldn't want to. They were vastly outnumbered in many such engagements. They only tried to engage when they knew they had an advantage because that was what was best for them. They're very good tacticians in that sense. What we see is a little more romanticization of the hand-to-hand combat than actual analysis of instances of hand-to-hand combat in the Seminole Wars. People will talk about, oh, they were afraid of this or they didn't do that. Well, they were also smarter than that. No one is going to willingly attack a porcupine formation if they don't have a means of penetrating it. It's just a dumb idea. The idea that they were afraid to do it is less of an issue, I think, than that they were smart enough not to do it. And the Seminoles, they were trying to fight at long ranges anyway. A lot of what they were using, they had some hunting guns, some hunting rifles, and they preferred to stay at a distance. So if the porcupine is charging, it's a lot easier to just retreat load further away and then keep peppering them as opposed to trying to join in a fray against a bunch of soldiers that are out to swarm you and that's what they want to do. A good example of this is the battle at uh, Lake Okeechobee where you have the militia volunteers who charge and they take something like 107 casualties from Seminole rifles. It did not turn out well for them. This idea that they're afraid of Soldiers in pack tactics is sort of a misnomer. They're smart enough not to engage where they know it's going to be disadvantageous for them. Bennett, I'll take a moment here to ask you about your job. What are you responsible for? Oh, uh, so my job here is essentially a curatorial or director's position. I'm actually the only person here. (laughs) So I run the Museum of Seminole County History. I'm the only county employee here. But I do have a lot of volunteers who I manage who make this museum as great as it is. They're responsible for a lot of the work putting up exhibits and changing them out. They are behind the scenes running the events that we put on and couldn't possibly do it without the volunteers here. So I'm very much a volunteer coordinator as much as anything else. As far as the history portion goes, aside from the managerial stuff running the museum, being a living historian gives me a lot more insight into the stories that I'm telling. Because the thing about a museum is all we're doing is we're telling a story. We are telling what we hope is a true and factual story. But that's all we're doing is we are sharing a narrative of past history and why it's relevant to today. And it's a lot easier to identify with and relate history to the modern day when you've lived sort of a shadow of it, whether it's at a three-day reenactment or whether it's cooking like they did or sewing your own clothing every once in a while, that sort of thing. 
And it also helps me identify with an older clientele. So a lot of the visitors here, they come to the museum for nostalgia's sake these days. They lived and grew up in these 1940s kitchens. And if you don't know what this thing on the counter does and they do, then suddenly you've lost all credibility to tell them anything about history in their eyes. I find it essential in engaging young and old with regards to history and how it affects today. All right, Bennett. How do you get involved in living history interpretation from a soldier's point of view? I grew up in Micanopy, Florida, and there's an organization out there called the Micanopy Regulars. I had done a lot of 16th and 17th century reenactment before. It's really easy to sew your own kit for those periods, and there are a lot of events out in St. Augustine. So I had experienced some staged combat and all of that sort of thing. But getting into this hobby is expensive if you don't have... $800 or I guess it's probably up to about 1200 now for a Peter Soli repro and another three or $400 for the Sky Blues, it's very difficult to get into this hobby unless you're already established and have a job and then have the free time to do it. So as a high schooler who had done some 16th century stuff and now in college and trying to work his way into other periods, having an organization like the Micanopy Regulars was essential to me getting into this period in history and just discovering how interesting it was. The Micanopy Regulars, they are an organization based out of the Micanopy Museum, and they have loaner kits. They have a couple of muskets, they have a couple of uniforms, and if you do their school event, I mean, not so much right now because of issues with COVID, but if you do their events, then you can keep the materials and represent the Micanopy regulars as a unit at other locations. They, for example, Fort King at their little educational arena. They do Dade Battle. Uh, I know Bob Waters is still over there. I think he still does demonstrations with the Micanopy regulars. It was an excellent way to get involved. And eventually, when I became established in my career, I bought my own uniform. And I went when instead of the artillery uniform that they were issued because there were at the Fort Micanopy, it was mostly the artillery. I went with a Dragoon's uniform with the, the darker blue shell jacket and the saber that they came out with that was absolutely an atrocious weapon and was mostly discarded by actual Dragoons in the field. <laughs> so it was a great way to get started. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Frank wrote a book, Fort Mellon, a microcosm of the Second Seminole War. Fort Mellon is the follow-on name to what was Camp Monroe, which is where the battle was initially. Tell us about the Frank book. We have a copy here at the museum. Arthur Frank used the Museum of Seminole County History's records during a lot of his research, and he wound up donating some of his findings to the museum as well as part of our Second Seminole War Room. You can see, for instance, his map of the Army District that was Fort Mellon overlaid on a then-modern map of the current city plan. His contributions, especially things like the steamship records, the post returns, they are probably the most valuable repository of records collected on Fort Mellon and Fort Reed. Fort Mellon, there were a couple of local historians who have put a lot of work into this. The late Christine Kinlaw Best is a prominent example. Her work is mostly at the Sanford Museum. And then there are mentions of it in other wars and with regards to other units. For example, the Second Dragoons. Charlie Carlson wrote a book called From Fort Mellon to Baghdad because the Second Dragoons, while they existed prior to the establishment of Fort Mellon, Fort Mellon was largely run by them for majority of their posting in the Second Seminole War. It's a smaller pamphlet, From Fort Mellon to Baghdad. Yeah, it's a history of the U.S. Second Dragoons. 
So, was it a microcosm? Whether it was a microcosm, the post returns, the breadth of the source material, it's still pretty much the standard for what we use in our interpretation. What's your parting thoughts as we wrap up? My thought wrapping up is I would encourage you, if you can, to get involved in your local history as much as possible. I mean, even though the Seminole Wars are somewhat distasteful subject in modern scholarship, the Indian Removal Act, they're seen for what they are, which was a horrible abuse of power and abuse of the trust in which the Native peoples had with the United States government. I think that by, I wouldn't say embrace is the right word, but by engaging with this history, we can better lay the foundations for preventing these kinds of mistakes and this kind of fallout in the future. That would be my encouragement, is get involved in your local history, engage with it, regardless of how distasteful it may be, and even consider reenacting it every once in a while, because it really does teach people in a far better and more visceral manner than just reading about it. That would be my parting thoughts. In our second part, Bennett Lloyd discusses the details of the actual battle. Bennett Lloyd, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. My pleasure. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminowars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.